In week three of our series, Gospel Endurance, going through the letter of 2 Timothy, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. If you uh, don't have a Bible and you're in need of a physical Bible, there's some in the back by our giving boxes. Feel free to grab one of those this morning. If you're using a device today, we uh, use the ESV translation here so you can change your device to that. You'll be able to follow along more easily. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19 will be our text this morning. Well, up until this point, Paul's encouragement for gospel endurance has been directed towards Timothy specifically. But what I want you to see is a slight switch that takes place in the first part of our text today and how he directs Timothy to remind others in the church of these things because it's for the utmost importance of their endurance and their faith so that they can too stand firm and endure by the gospel and for the gospel. So 2 Timothy 2, 14 through verse 19, follow along as I read. It says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have already swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord Church. Praise be to God. Well, there is this uh, Asian proverb about a farmer and his son and the village that they live in. And they have this workhorse, this single workhorse that works the farm, provides for all their needs, works the soil. And one day this workhorse, it runs off. And all the villagers hear about this news and they tell the farmer, oh man, that's, that's such bad news. And the farmer says, we'll see. A few days later, the horse returns and it brings a bunch of mares with it. And the villagers hear about this news and they tell the farmer, oh, this is such great news. And the farmer says, We'll see. A few days later, the son is attempting to break one of the mares to train her, and she bucks him off, and he breaks his leg. And all the villagers hear about this, and they tell the farmer, oh, this is such bad news. The farmer says, we'll see. A few weeks go by, and there's a war that breaks out in the area, and every able-bodied man is asked to go fight in this war, but the son is saved because he has his broken leg. In the first battle of the war, every single person from this village dies. And the villagers hear about this and they tell the farmer, such great news, your son was spared. The farmer says, we'll see. Now you start to get the, uh, the gist of this. The story can keep going on and on. But the moral of this proverb is supposed to be that we can never be actually quite certain if something is good news or not that we need to wait to see how our circumstances might pan out before we know if something is actually good or bad news. And sadly, this is often how we can think of the gospel in our own lives. 
We can be so quick to equate how good the gospel is with how well or how not so well our circumstances are going. My, uh, my wife and our boys, we are getting ready to uh, head up to a camp called Camp Patmos on, uh, on Kelly's Island for a week. We're going to be leading music up there next week. And uh, many of you know Dave Sellers, uh, one of the gentlemen in our congregation. He runs this camp up there. And uh, so getting ready to head up there last week one day, I was doing some work on our van. And um, now, mind you, I'll be playing music next week, so I'll be playing guitar. So the whole time I'm working on our van, I'm just thinking, don't screw up your hands, right? Don't pinch your fingers. Don't burn yourself. If you guys know, I have a record of that. Uh, don't do anything to hurt your hands. And what do I do? Pinch my finger, like bad. And if you've ever wondered if any of your pastors use certain words when they hurt themselves, this one did. Now, what's even worse, and it's almost embarrassing for me to say, but is where my mind immediately went. And it went to here. God, how could you do this to me? Don't you know that I need my fingers? Don't you know what I am doing next week? Now, what I was really saying is, your gospel should keep me from things like this. Now, I know that's a small thing, but I imagine if we were to examine our lives closely, we would probably see that we do this in many small things and maybe even some other bigger things. We have this expectation that we shouldn't have to deal with this kind of stuff, right? The gospel should somehow guard us from this. I wanna make this correlation. I want you to listen to this quote from a pretty famous preacher by the name of Joseph Prince. He says, you are destined to reign in this life. You are called by the Lord to be a success, enjoy wealth, health, and a life of victory. It is not the Lord's desire that you live a life of defeat, poverty, and failure, or in my case, smashed fingers. This is what we would define today as the prosperity gospel. And I want to be clear that this is not something that we believe in here. But what I want you to see is that the prosperity gospel at its core is not really just about money, but is actually based on the gospel only being as good as our worldly circumstances are going. This is a false gospel, all right? It's a heresy that Paul is combating in our text this morning, and it's a heresy that we need to be combating still today. See, even if we would say that we don't believe in the extremes of the prosperity gospel, I think that we may oftentimes fall into its subtleties. And there are very dangerous implications for how this actually affects our faith and therefore our ability to endure, right? This is a deep issue for Paul because if we are to have real gospel endurance, then we need the assurance of the real gospel. We need to know what it is, what it proclaims, what it promises, both now and for our future to come. And we get this by rightly handling the truth of God's word. Being careful of both the type of gospel that we are listening to from others and the type of gospel that we are proclaiming to ourselves. Because the type of gospel we listen to is the type of gospel we will begin to love. 
And the type of gospel that we begin to love will be the type of gospel that we begin to live out or expect to be worked out in our lives. And so there are three calls from Paul to Timothy, at least three, to help us here so that we can endure in the hope of the true gospel. All right, let's break these down together. Paul calls Timothy to remind them, to warn them, and to lastly assure them. Right back at the beginning of verse 14, you can look back at the text. Paul says, remind them of these things. And he's pointing back to what we read together last week. And you can look back actually in verse 11 with me to see. This faithful saying, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And then lastly, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Well, there's uh, three of those lines that should be an extreme comfort to all true disciples of Christ with that third stanza being an equally extreme warning to both false teachers and apostates, which is just a theological word that means those who deny the true gospel of Christ. And so I wanna quickly break these four lines down because there is both present and future tense meaning that Paul has in these lines. And it's important for what he is saying in our text this morning. So look at it again with me. If we have died with him, present tense, we will also live with him. And this line here has both present and future tense meaning. This is undoubtedly Paul referencing Romans 6, 8, where he uses this identical language almost to describe our conversion as dying and being raised with Christ. All right, in Romans 6, 8, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. I wanna be really, really clear here that we have new life in Christ now, right? We have spiritually been taken from being dead to sin, being made alive to Christ. This is Ephesians 2. We've been resurrected in that way. And yet there is still the fullness of that resurrection to come, right? The church refers to this as what we call the now and the not yet, what we're still waiting to come. And the best analogy I could think of for this, and they all break down at some point, and this one does, is kind of like if you've ever booked an all-expense paid vacation. All right, payment has been made. You're going, it's set in place. And yet the full experience of it won't be realized until you're actually there, until you're sitting on that beach, enjoying all the benefits that were already secured through the payment that was made. Remind them of these things. Remind them of the ransom that was made through the suffering of Christ. And that in all of their suffering and all of their persecution, that they have died with Christ, that they have new life now spiritually and a new life yet to come physically, where the same resurrected glorious state that Christ is now in we will also be in. Hold tight to that hope. Paul says in this next stanza down in verse 12, if we endure, present tense, by God's grace, as Pastor Mark taught us last week, 
we will also reign with him, which again has both present and future tense meaning. Right, the first part of that line is Paul's very purpose for this entire letter. Endurance. Endurance through suffering, through trial, through hardship for the sake of the gospel. And then we see this beautiful hope of the reward for that endurance, which is not only being alive in Christ, as if that is not enough already, but that we will reign with him. Right? This is not the same type of reign that I described earlier from that prosperity gospel. It's not a reign that promises health, wealth, and treasure now. This reign needs to be a part of God's kingdom to share as his royal family the glorious news of the gospel as we have received it. We have insider information. Dr. Arkant Hughes, he describes this as privileged intimacy with Christ now and for our forever future. And the apostle John, he gives words to this in his revelation of Christ in Revelation 5.10. When he says, worthy are you, meaning Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the promised hope that we who are in Christ can be assured of now and forever. Then we see this word of warning in the next line. And yet what I want you to see is that even it has God's grace running through it. If we deny him present tense, he also will deny us future tense. I say this is a gracious line because most scholars agree that the second part of that line is only future tense, meaning that God extends mercy all the way to the very end, even for those who deny him, that they may re repent and that they may return. And we're gonna see the importance of that in next week's text. But here Paul speaks again specifically to false teachers and apostasy, which again, just a word that means the full and final denial of Christ and his gospel. Paul is pointing to Jesus' own words here that we actually see in Luke 12, when Jesus says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now I would imagine for many of you like me, your mind goes immediately to thinking about Peter, the apostle Peter, and his denial of Christ that we see in Luke 22. But this is not the same as the apostle Peter's denial of Christ, which was temporary and out of fear. It was not a full and final rejection of Christ. And therefore Christ forgave him for it, which is why Jesus continues in Luke 12 and says that everyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, like Peter was. No, to deny here means to deny in your heart that Christ is the son of God and to reject believing on him as the salvation in your life. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit 
And it's why Jesus also says in Luke 12, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so what I want you to see is that the stanza of if we deny Christ, he also will deny us is really a gracious and yet alarming warning to false teachers like Hymenaeus and like Philetus that are mentioned in our text, but also to us to remain set by the truth of God's word on the one true gospel of Christ. And then lastly, in those four lines, we see if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This last line is kind of the triumphant culmination of hope for us. As we, like Peter did, so often experience wavering in our faith. And we can even feel as if we are faithless at times. This line should remind us of the very presence and the gracious nature of our God. Notice that this whole line, this whole stanza is present tense. He is, he remains faithful now, even when we are faithless, like the old hymn, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that I love. And yet even when our faith is weak, And even when we feel like we have nothing left and we just want to throw in the towel, we have this promise and this assurance that he will not let us. He remains faithful. Why? And Paul tells us, because it's his very nature. For he cannot deny himself. He does not waver in his covenant with us. He will not let us fall from his grace. He will preserve us in Christ as we persevere with Christ. These are the truths of the gospel that Paul gives to Timothy to remind the church of, to stand firm in, to rejoice in, no matter the circumstances. Remind them of these things. Paul then moves on from encouraging Timothy and telling them what they need to remember to warning them about what they need to forget or stop taking part in. He tells Timothy in verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I wanna be clear here that Paul is definitely not talking about avoiding arguments when the gospel itself is at stake. And we can be sure of that because one, it's the very thing that he's doing in our text right now. And two, it's the very thing that he does in most of his letters. And there's at one point actually in Galatians 2, we see the Apostle Paul actually rebuke the Apostle Peter for faltering from the truth of the gospel. Now what Paul is talking about here are word battles. Getting caught up in philosophical and theological debates that at their core have very little, if anything at all, to do with the actual gospel and living out a life of godliness. These types of arguments, they just puff us up, make us feel more intelligent. And most of the time, they just keep people off our backs from actually having to live out being a disciple of Christ. Paul says, avoid these pointless argumentative forums Gosh, if we only had 
an example of this. And today, yeah, a little bit of sarcasm there. Kyle Gordon caught it. Man, if you have been on any form of social media for, I don't know, more than a minute, you've seen this. Maybe this morning you even need to confess and repent because you've taken part in this. Let me just say that there is grace and there is forgiveness for you in Christ. If that is where you find yourself this morning, but confess it, turn from it. Hear the warning from Paul to avoid it at all costs. Man, the unneeded and unhelpful arguments that take place among professing believers, not just on social media, but in general, are absolutely disgusting. And you may think those words are kind of harsh, aren't they, Scott? I'm actually just rewording Paul's words here and what he's trying to communicate. I'm also not saying, and you need to hear me in this, that I have somehow arrived in that area because I haven't. I'm human, all right? And like you, I need reminded through the truths of God's word that this really is an unhelpful and a disgusting thing to take part in. Paul says, avoid these word battles and these irreverent babbles as you handle the truth of God's word because it's actually not helping anyone. It's just leading them into more and more ungodliness and it's spreading like gangrene. Google gangrene today. Not now. I want y'all throwing up in here. Ask Jeremiah Dillon about some image. Don't ask him. I don't think he can show those pictures, but it's horrendous. Paul's trying to communicate the disgusting nature of what this looks like on the lives of disciples of Christ and how quickly it can spread and take you over. And that this is not what the life of a true disciple of Christ ought to look like. It's not giving people an image of what the gospel is, what it accomplishes. It's not going to lead you into the hopeful assurance you need to endure in this life. So avoid it. Return to the actual good news of the gospel. Paul then goes on to give an example here of two teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And it's here that we really get to the root of the issue for Paul that I started with this morning. And it's why it's so important to handle the word of truth rightfully, to remember the one true gospel, to avoid these irreverent babbles and word battles because it can lead to both proclaiming and believing the type of false gospel that Hymenaeus and Philetus are perpetuating, which has major implications for us, and they are not good ones. Paul says they have swerved from the truth, and they are upsetting the faith of some by saying that the resurrection has already happened. Well, let's break that line down because I understand that's a little bit confusing. I mean, don't we believe that the resurrection has happened? That Christ has been raised? The answer is yes, of course we do. And so does Paul. It's the very thing that our faith is built on. But that's not the resurrection that Paul is speaking of here. He is talking about the final resurrection for all those who have been saved by Christ. The physical resurrection of both the living and the dead when Christ will return and he will make all things that he has secured through his resurrection new again. 
this resurrection is still to come. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul explains this heresy here. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to pick up in uh, verse 12. says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Meaning, follow Paul's progression of thought here. If the physical resurrection of all believers has already happened, which is what Hymenaeus and Philetus are teaching, then all the promises that are to come with it are already here to be had now. All right? All the health, all the treasure, all the glory, which then takes away the hope of a physical resurrection to come. And if there is no hope of a physical resurrection to come, then what you're really saying is that Christ himself hasn't been resurrected. And if Christ himself hasn't been resurrected, then our faith now, it's pointless. Because it means this life, this is as good as it gets. And it's why Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all to be most pitied. So do you understand why this might be upsetting the faith of some who have repented of their sinfulness and believed on Christ fully and yet are still experiencing hardship, trials, battles against their own sins, suffering? It's for the same reason this type of garbage is upsetting the faith of some still today. It's not the real gospel. It's not the real gospel. This is the real gospel. Paul goes on to say, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, us. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. This is the hope yet to come, church. Remain grounded in the true gospel. Remind others of it. Warn others about not getting wrapped up in the things that just pull you away from the hope of the true gospel. And lastly, like Paul, Assure others who are in the true gospel. Remind them, warn them, and assure them, which is our final point for this morning. You can turn back to our text, 2 Timothy 2.19. You're going to see Paul says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. 
The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I'm gonna call this a dual assurance. I don't know if that's a real thing or if it's a theological term or not, but we're gonna make it one this morning. Because in the same way that this is a hopeful assurance to all those who belong to the Lord and to proclaim his one true gospel, it's an assurance of judgment to those who don't. That verse that we just read together in 2 Timothy is Paul pointing back to this, um, this kind of obscure story in number 16. And it's kind of a long story with 50 verses, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but you should definitely read it at some point, number 16. But I'm going to summarize it for you. We see a rebellion in Israel as a group of Levites rise up against Moses and his brother Aaron, who has been given priesthood authority, meaning for all the tribes of Israel to be able to worship God, they must go through the mediation of God's chosen high priest, Aaron. It was the only way. So Paul is making parallels here and giving us imagery of Jesus' one true gospel being the only way. And now in number 16, it says a group of more than 250 people, they rise up against Moses and Aaron saying this, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them and the Lord is among them. Why do you then exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And it tells us Moses, who was a lot more gracious than I would have been, then fell on his face and he said to them these words that we see in 2 Timothy today. He says that in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and he will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And the morning comes and the story ends with the earth opening up and God swallowing up and destroying every single person that came up against Aaron and Moses. Paul's kind of cheeky because I think he knew full well that this letter would be read amongst the church in Ephesus and that this word was eventually going to make its way to the ears of Hymenaeus and Philetus. So I think this is a strong and yet gracious rebuke to them. You remember what happens to those who call upon the name of the Lord and yet go against the truth of his word. Remember the judgment that will come to you, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And yet at the same time, it's this hopefulness of us also remembering the faithfulness God has towards all those who do hold tight to the word of truth, who keep in step with his one true gospel. Here's my encouragement for us this morning, which is really just Paul's encouragement. Not really rewriting anything here. Hold tight. Hold tight to the word of truth by the grace that you have in Christ. Hold tight to the one true gospel, the hope of the one true gospel. Work hard by the grace that you have in Christ to rightly handle God's word. Avoid getting wrapped up in these word babbles and this irreverent babble. Be assured, church, that the Lord knows who are his and that nothing will separate you from him. For those of you that are in the midst 
of deep suffering right now, remember both the present hope of Christ now and the fullness of that hope to come. Take heart. This life, this is not anywhere as good as it gets. There is a future glory that awaits us that the gospel of Christ will carry us to as we endure with him by the truth of his word. We can be sure of it. That is the hope that we remember this morning as we come to the table for communion. As we do, I want you to reflect on these last lines in our text today because they have implications for us in our taking communion. The Lord knows who are his and let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. First off, if that's not you this morning, if you're not someone who would say names the name of the Lord, meaning someone who has repented of their sinfulness, placed their faith in Christ, then we would actually ask that you refrain this morning and that you would instead consider the things that you've heard today. You have the opportunity now to confess your sins to Christ and to profess your need and your reliance on him as your savior forever. This is the good news of the gospel. And it really is that simple. And our prayer is that you would do this this morning so that you can take part of the sacramental act of remembrance of Christ and the hope for all believers. Secondly, if that is already you this morning, take seriously the call to depart from iniquity, specifically the iniquity or the sin of finding hope in the type of false gospel that's maybe actually more focused on worldly comforts than it is godly endurance, more focused on prosperity from Christ than perseverance in Christ. For making the gospel out to only be as good as our circumstances. Let us examine ourselves this morning and return, return to the hope of the one true gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is the call for us as we approach the communion table. He goes on to say this, says Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup in the covenant, in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, the band ushers, you can make your way forward. As they do, let's take a few moments of silence and let's come before God and let's examine ourselves before him. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for uh, the hope of your gospel. Forgive us for the ways that we so often cheapen the actual hopefulness of it. 
by thinking that it's only as good as our circumstances. And so remind us, Lord, that if we had hope in this life only, we would be of all people most to be pitied. But we don't. We have the hope of a resurrection to come when you will return and you will fully restore all those that by your broken body and your shed blood, you have fully redeemed. What a gospel. May it be our highest joy and our deepest need forever. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.